Matthew chapter 5. The title of this message <clears throat> is The Beatitudes, Kingdom Realities. The Beatitudes, Kingdom Realities. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Lord, help us as we study. Three things upon which I wish to speak. One, lack is overcome by fulfillment. Two, loss is overcome by recovery. And three, lowliness is the on-ramp to inheritance. Background. Jesus <clears throat> has just been recognized by word of mouth as being a messianic figure, if not the Messiah. John the Baptist has said to everybody who thought he, meaning John the Baptist, was the Messiah, has said to everybody, I am not fit to untie the sandals of the one who is coming after me because he is so much mightier than I am. And when Jesus comes on the horizon, he says, that's him. That's him. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Everybody with an earshot understood that the Messiah was on the scene. If they had understood by the Spirit, not just by decibels. Not just listening, listening audibly, but listening with the heart. And the society had been pretty much primed 30 years earlier. And you have to understand something about Jewish culture as well as the time frame. 30 years earlier, these magi came from the east. Actually, about 28 years earlier. Came from the east because they had seen this star. And this star told them something. They were astrologers, if maybe astronomers, but probably astrologers. And the star told them something, they just didn't know what. And they probably went throughout all of their literature and their society. In Babylon, we believe, or someplace close, where the Jews had been, because they had been taken captive by Babylon in 576 B.C., and they had, they had rewritten all of their literature from Hebrew into Greek, because Greek was a common language. And the Babylonians had found these, these scriptures, the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is the Old Testament version of uh, Old Testament Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Old Testament. And they had found it. And they, as they were looking through, they, they probably saw the reference in Numbers 22 where Balaam prophesies about a scepter coming from Zion and that there would be a star that would recognize this authority. And so they came traveling to Jerusalem to find out who is this king that has been announced by a star. Nobody has ever been announced by a star. They had to come and see. Well, when they arrived at Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem was saying, huh, we don't know what you're talking about. And so they were the announcement of Christ's birth. Well, if you know something about Jewish culture, about the age of 30 was when a man would come to maturity where he could represent his father's interest in business. And what the father would do if the man at 30 was, was actually mature in character, not just in age, he would bring him to the gates of the city. Now, the gate of the city was a place at which people who had goods would come in and pay their taxes or their tolls. The Chamber of Commerce would be there. The mayor's office, if you will, quasi, the city council. Business dealings would be done at the gate of the city. It was more than just a door 
that allowed people exit and entrance. And a man would come to the gate of the city and he would say if his son was ready to take over his business or to be a representative of the business, he would say these words. Behold, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. What that meant was when he speaks, I speak. When he acts, I act. That happened about the age of 30. Well, here comes Jesus on the horizon. John the Baptist has been the the crier out in the wilderness saying everybody needed to repent and he was bold. And again, they thought he was so anointed he must be the Messiah because the 30 years was right about that time. And John and Jesus were born about the same time period. John's mother, Elizabeth, was six months pregnant earlier than Mary. And they were relatives, Mary and Elizabeth. And so when when, when John the Baptist appears on the scene, everybody says, you're the Messiah because you're amazing. You're talking about the government. You're telling what the military should do. You're even talking to Herod, telling him he needs to repent. You are amazing. You've got to be him. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not him, but somebody who's coming after me is, and he is amazing. He, you think I'm great. He is so great that my greatness is nothing. I'm not even able to untie his sandals. That's how great he is. Now, what that meant was this. The, the, the servant in the house, who was the lowliest servant, untied the people's sandals and washed their feet before they came into the domicile to eat or to reside because their feet were filthy. They didn't have sidewalks and pavement. They had dirt. And so they didn't have covered shoes. They had sandals. And so the lowliest servant in the house would untie the sandals and wash the feet before the, the guests came in. He said, I'm not even able to do that. That's how great he is. And when he comes up, he pronounces him, that's him, that's him. And then, of course, we see that he, when, when he gets baptized, meaning Jesus gets baptized by John, heavens open up, dove appears, lands on Jesus' head. And then what do we hear? The father superimposing his words over Israelite culture so that everybody who had ears to hear could. Behold, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. When he speaks, I speak. When he acts, I act. Jesus said after that moment, because John the Baptist was his prophet, the prophet always announced a king, and the Messiah was king. He was a king that would come and save the people from their societal sins. They didn't think they needed to be saved from their individual sins, but they did think they needed to be saved from their oppression and their societal sins. And the Messiah was the one who was to come and set up a kingdom that would have no parallel in peace or prosperity. Its expanse would not have an end, and it would never stop rule, meaning there would never be a cessation of the one who sits on that throne. He'd always be there. So they were looking at this Jesus. Woo, this is amazing. He has come, and he goes out into the wilderness, and, and, and he, he defeats the devil on his own turf through temptation and doesn't give in. It's amazing. He comes back, and the first thing he says, his first sermon, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when you walk out of here, you will take what you like that I said. You'll de-emphasize the stuff you don't like. I don't know how many emails I'm going to get about Ferguson this week. I don't know. But you will de-emphasize what you don't like. And you will emphasize what you do. And so when people heard Jesus say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand, probably what they went home and told their mama was, Jesus said the kingdom's here. <laughs> probably nothing about repent. Just the kingdom's here. 
Jesus was trying to set the tone that if you want to come into this kingdom, you're going to have to change. You don't get it just because you're born into it, meaning simply because you're a seed of Abraham. You, you have to be reborn into it, not just born naturally. You've got to change. You've got to repent. And as the people begin to gather and they see there's momentum building, Jesus sees the crowds and he goes up on the mountain. He says, I'm going to have to do some things that set the tone for the entire ministry. I've got to say some things to a group of people so that they begin to, to be those who can multiply my tone setting wherever they go. So he brings, he goes up on top of this mountain, getting away from the crowds, or maybe putting himself in a position where he can be heard better in being elevated, and the disciples follow him up there. And he begins to set the tone in giving his inaugural speech. Oh, it's amazing. But these people are looking for the Messiah to do one thing generally and one thing only, free us from Rome. That's what you're here for, right? I mean, we've, been, we've had Rome's foot on our neck for the better part of a century. Before that, it was Greece. Before that, it was the Persians and the Medes. Before that, it was the Babylonians. And when we had our own sovereignty, our, our last kings in, in Judah, they were really bad. Manasseh was terrible, and Zedekiah was worse. Do something to fix our, our oppressive situation. We haven't had good rule in about seven centuries. Give us a message that's going to encourage us about revolution. It's our time. It's your time. We're here to follow you. That was her mindset. How are you going to take over? Just tell me what to do. So, Jesus stands up and he says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they're listening, they're going, Oh, oh, oh okay, okay. Uh, okay, that, that, I, 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 I can deal with that. I, I, I know you're going someplace, just keep, keep, keep going, keep going. Yeah, blessed are the poor. I, I never considered myself blessed when I was poor, but that, that's okay, that's okay. I'm, I'm working with this. Blessed are those who mourn, for, for they will be comforted. I bless them, mourn. I, what, what is he? Do you know what he? I ain't trying to be blessed by mourning. I don't want, I, I, I'm trying to get over. I'm trying to get over. I'm trying to get to the other side of this. Well, okay, but keep going. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Now, stop right there, dude. I want you to teach me how to fight with a sword. I want you to tell me, galvanize us as a marching people. We're supposed to, don't meet gentle. Je we have been gentle. We've been forced to be gentle. Why don't you give us some marching orders? That was the mindset of the people to whom he was speaking. Fix my situation right now. Jesus was saying, okay, but he's doing it differently. He wasn't just trying to bring societal change. He was trying to bring heart change. Because if you don't change the heart of the people, the society goes back to the bad. You can go ahead and change all the clothes you want. But if the man on the inside is messed up, he's still messed up whatever clothes you put him in. He's still messed up. Jesus was trying to change the man. And so he started with something that was counterintuitive. But it was eternal. These were eternal principles that would work and fix people's lives and change the world if people would just do it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, 
I've read probably 15 commentaries on this, and all of them pretty much say the same thing, that Jesus is speaking of those who are lowly of heart, and, and as a result of the lowliness of heart, he's recognizing their estate, their state of being, and he says, I, I, I want you to know yours is the kingdom. But there is no definition as, as to how those two things relate. And so I began to do some study, and I picked it apart. And, and I, I, you have to understand, the people who were, were speaking in Jesus' day spoke Aramaic, which was kind of a combination of Hebrew and a language from Aram, which was on the other side of the Jordan River. But they, they wrote the Bible in Greek, yet they thought Hebrew. So there were Hebrews that spoke Aramaic that also communicated in Greek. And so you've got to figure all that together to really understand how they may have heard or what Jesus wanted them to hear in his speaking. So you break, break apart the words. You do a little bit of exegesis, which is tearing apart a passage, putting it back together and getting the original meaning and intent of the writer and the people to whom he was writing. So uh, let, let's, let's take a couple of words. Poor. Blessed are the poor. Poor is pretty much what it means in English or Greek or Aramaic. Lacking, without. But spirit gives a whole different feeling to it. The word spirit in the Greek is the word pneuma, which means breath. So without, without putting Jesus in church and realizing that he may be trying to communicate to a broad populace that is unchurched because the Jewish people, the religious leaders of the day, really didn't treat the, the general populace very well. Let's, let's read it like he may have spoken it to people who were unchurched, though had a culture of religion. Blessed are those who are without breath, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Any of y'all run track? Now I was bad at it, but I ran it. I still work out, and I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty serious about it. And I, I hate it. I, I don't apologize for that. I hate it. I hate working out. I hate it. Because what I do is painful. I make my body my slave. And I beat the mess out of it. So that after I preach to others, I am not myself disqualified. I do that spiritually and I do it naturally. I want to make sure that when I'm 75, I'm not in a bed laid up in some hospital someplace, unable to preach because I didn't take care of myself when I was 20. Disqualified. I'm not doing that. So I beat my body, make it my slave. My body is crying out for an emancipation proclamation. <laughs> I ain't kidding. I mean, it says stop every day. But the thing that is endemic to people who work out with some consistency and try to push themselves is that they feel like at some point in their exercise they can't go on. They are without breath. And everything on the inside of you is saying, Stop. Stop. When I ran a quarter in high school, I wasn't good enough to run in high school or college, but it was a part of the workout. I finished. And, and just to give you a, a clue, I was somewhere around 58, 59. I was slow. I was slow. But when I got across the finish line, there was oxygen every place. I just couldn't find it. <laughs> I couldn't find it. <laughs> it was terrible. And, and even though you may not be able to, to relate, some of you jog. 
Some, all of you should, but all, some of you don't. And, and you know what it's like to feel, you know, at the end of the run that you just, oh, you've really pushed yourself. And you feel like you're about to drop. And when you finish, your hands go here, your hands go here, they go down here. You are just, oh, oh, blessed are you when life has winded you. When you feel like you can't go on anymore. When you feel like the oppressive nature of the Roman Empire societally has wore you out as a community, I want you to know that there is a kingdom in reserve for you that nobody else can access. There is a kingdom that's in it for your benefit. There is a king who is giving everything for your benefit. I know you feel like the enemy has worn you out and you can't go on anymore. Listen to me. When you come to the end of yourself, that's where you get to find the beginning of God. Sometimes I think he waits for us to come to the end of ourselves so that he can begin to do what he needs to do in our lives because we are too busy trying to help him like he needs our help. We're so good he can't do without us. Are you kidding me? That's how you got here because you weren't any good at it. You needed to give your life to him because he was better living through you than you living through yourself. God wants to help you, but he brings us to the end of ourselves that we might then begin to trust in a power greater than ourselves. Rely completely upon him. Blessed are you when you are completely out of breath, when life has wore you out and you don't think you can go on anymore. The kingdom is yours and all of the things that give you empowerment you can access. Huh. That's a tremendous benefit because I can tell you there have been moments where I've been so wore out in ministry, I didn't think I could go on. But I found God in the middle of it. I didn't wait till I got greater strength to find him. I said, no, I need you now. And I stayed in my prayer closet. I stayed in, in his presence for days trying to figure out how do I find you in the midst of this horrible situation. I don't feel like I can go on, but my people need me to go on. And I have to find you beyond just my service. I need to find you relationally so my soul can be uplifted so that after I have done my ministry, I can still be filled. That's the benefit for those who are sons and daughters of the kingdom. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning is a word, <clears throat> pentheo, and it means to lament, to wail, if you will. And mourning was a public display in that day. If you had a loved one that, that, that passed, you wanted everybody to know it. And you dressed differently. Today, even we do that. We dress in black. But back then, they dressed in sackcloth, which is like burlap. And they took off all their nice clothes and that which felt good underneath. And they put on stuff that irritated the skin. And they would sit in dust, dirt. And they'd throw it on their head in an attempt to let people know, I want to be with the one who's in the grave. I can't get there. He's passed on. But I want to be there. I miss him, her, so much. And they would wail. And they would even hire mourners hire them to amplify the importance of the one who had passed to the community and they'd come in and wail it was a public display but I don't think Jesus was just speaking to the individual that had lost somebody because mourning can take place at the loss of anything important I don't want to minimize the fact that mourning is most 
concentrated when you've lost a loved one. But when you lose your job, it feels a lot the same. When you lose all your resources in the stock market, it feels a lot the same. When you lose something of significance, a loneliness sets in your soul, not lonely, lowliness sets in your soul. And it's tough to shake. And God wants you to know this, that in the midst of your most depressing times, when you don't feel like you can get over whatever you're going through, when you feel like you don't want to go to bed because you go to bed alone with your thoughts and you don't want to wake up because you've got to deal with realities of the day, when life has thrown you so many curves down that you don't feel like there's any way up and all you do is put on a happy face so everybody sees the person they want to see but on the inside you are dying. I have been in the environment of depression, never been clinically depressed. At least I've never been diagnosed. But when I was in my 20s, I would go through times that were really dark and I didn't know how to get out of it. I know what it means to have this cloud hang around your head all the time and not feel like you can ever shake it. And, and, and I, I, I didn't go to the psychiatrist or psychologist because I didn't have the money. And if he had prescribed medication, I wouldn't have taken it anyway because I knew it might be somewhat dependent. And I thought, now, that is not appropriate. I'm not saying, you, you got medication, you take it. You take it, take it, take it, take it. Don't you go home saying that pastor told me. No, no, no. No, no, no. I'm giving you my testimony. I didn't. But I knew that my God could help me. I began to look at my Bible and let it begin to define who I was rather than my circumstances or how I felt. And I would talk to myself about what the Bible said. I'd get passages of scripture and I'd just read them to myself constantly and I would pray them and I'd preach them to myself regularly. Talking about greater is he who is in you than everything else that is in the world. If God be for you, who can be against you? Oh, you don't know what that passage means. Paul is talking about a court of law in Romans chapter 8. And he says this, the only way you can be convicted is if the accuser is correct in his accusation and he's not also complicit with the crime. So we like to look at the accuser as a devil because he is called the accuser of the brethren. The problem is when he comes before God, he can't, he can't have any credibility because when he says, look at what he did, he's complicit in that he inspired the deed. So he's as guilty as the person that he's accusing. So he needs to be on trial as well. So he's not a legitimate witness. Who is the one who is ultimately at offense because we have offended them? God Almighty. He's the ultimate one who, is, who has offense. Therefore, since God has decided to not hold our sins against us and to take out all the punishment that was due us on Christ, he no longer accuses us. Therefore, if he be for us, who's against us? There's not a court of law in the universe that can hold us guilty for our crimes because God is the one who accuses and he has chosen not to. Oh, I would meditate on these scriptures. I'd talk them to myself. I'd preach. And all of a sudden, after about six to eight months, the cloud was leaving. I began to redefine myself after what God thought of me, not what I thought about myself. And even though my circumstances hadn't changed, Brett had. 
Blessed are those who mourn. And the word comfort is the word parakaleo, which means encouragement. Blessed are those who mourn, because there's encouragement in here. You can find something that comes alongside to strengthen you and build you up and take you to another level in my presence. So if you mourn, you got access to power that brings you out. Lastly, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> gentle is also translated meek, and meek does not mean weak. Gentle is, a, is an attribute. It's a character of God. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Gentleness is something that needs to be learned. It doesn't come naturally. I, would you feel comfortable giving a gerbil and putting it in the hands of a two-year-old? That gerbil has about 10 seconds to live. <laughs> Two-year-old doesn't know what, to, what you have to do is say, okay, this is a gerbil. Let me teach you. Stroke real gentle. Be real. You have to teach gentleness. If not, mankind will just use its strength because that's what it's good at. But in Scripture, the stronger you are, the more bounded you need to be by by rules and principles so that you can channel all that strength in the right direction to its ultimate end, its proper goal. Gentleness allows us the privilege of making sure that we channel our strength in the right way. Meekness means this, strength under power, excuse me, strength under control. The ability to take all the power and, and gifting of a person and keep it in bounds. We're called to be passionate people. And that's one of the strengths that God gives humanity is to be passionate. But we cannot allow our passion to go outside of our marriage and find somebody else to, to satisfy it. You have to be bounded. We're called to be prosperous, but we cannot allow our business practices to become unethical in order to gain our prosperity. We must be bounded. God wants us to be self-controlled because the meek will inherit the earth. Now, meekness will allow us the privilege of being on the on-ramp to, to inheritance because the earth is God's and everything in it, Psalm 24, verse 1. It's all God's. He chooses to give it to whom he wishes and he chooses to give it to the meek. But those who are not meek might still be strong and so they feel they can take what God hasn't given them. But the earth is inherited, not taken. Because it's God's. So when somebody is strong and not meek and takes something that's not given, then God says, you may have it for a minute, but I'm going to take it back and give it to that whom I appoint. Because he always gives it to the meek. And if you are meek, you may not have what you want now, but you are in line for a serious inheritance. Somebody else may have what you need. Somebody else may be using what you think is yours. Ah, just wait. Just keep doing the will of God every day. Keep loving him. Keep, keep living by the highest standards and best practices. Keep confessing this word. Stay within the bounds. Don't go outside simply because you don't have and you're tempted to get it because you don't have it yet. Stay in bounds and watch the inheritance come to you because God is faithful. He is faithful. He'll make sure you get what you need. The Israelites looked at this and they didn't understand it. 
They couldn't get it. They wanted him to take the kingdom. Do something now and teach us to take it. He said, no, it's, it's really given. That's how somebody gets it. May we practice these things that are counterintuitive so that we can be in the best place for God to bless us and make this world different. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. There really is nobody like you.